Amen. Let's be seated. <clears throat> I do hope that everyone here can genuinely say you wholeheartedly agree with what we just sang. You ever wonder, I know it's not possible, but what if you could hear even 15 minutes of testimony right now from those who have been off in eternity? What would they have to say? You know, some of the old Puritans used to say that hell is locked from the inside, meaning that those that are there hate God so much they wouldn't let Him in if they could. I appreciate what they're trying to say, but I don't think they're right. I think the account in Luke 16 of Lazarus and the rich man. What's the rich man saying from the grave? Give me a drop of water and send somebody back to tell those on the earth. You know, uh, the people of the devil relentlessly hate the people of God as a general rule, but in one testimony, they're united beyond the grave. Turn to Christ while you can. And this world has nothing for you. I hope you young people understand that. Oh, it's glitz and glamour going to be hurled at you. It's pleasures. It's money. It's wealth. It's philosophy. Everything's going to be thrown at you. I hope you can turn your back on it and say, I want Christ. I want God. I want treasures in heaven. I want things above because they're going to last. All right, James chapter 1. We had to stop last time due to time constraints. Again, I'm, I'm trying to go through each of these sections in one week, but I'm not going to promise that. Sometimes I think that a little more emphasis is necessary. We do want to keep moving. But last time we stopped right in the middle of this section in the book of James that was just read in your hearing. And again, as a reminder, the theme of the book of James could be titled The Behavior of Biblical Faith. It's what faith looks like in its everyday life, which again is how the Bible consistently defines it. Nobody is saved by works. Nobody comes to Christ by virtue of their performance of what they've done. But James continually makes the case that true saving faith produces change and True biblical faith exercised in our Christian life is manifested from the outside. There's no such thing as a faith that you just have in your heart. Somebody says, I'm a person of faith. James says, show me. Because your priorities, your actions, your response to the Scriptures, your level of involvement in the lives of other people, that's going to demonstrate what character and amount of faith that you really have. Now really what we did is stop last time. We, we were talking about how faith hears and obeys the written Word of God. And really we stopped right in the middle of those two verbs. Hearing and obeying. So to regain a little bit of momentum, because we did kind of stop in the middle, let's review just a little bit. Uh, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. There's no exceptions to that. And by extension, it's true of every truly good thing any person has ever done to you. Now think about that. Somebody does something nice for you. Who is the ultimate source of that? I know that we can say thank you. We ought to. We can thank the person. But if it's really a good thing, who is the ultimate source of that? 
It's God. If there's any virtue in that person to do something kind for you, that virtue ultimately came from God. Every good thing came from Him. And of course, the crown of God's good gifts is salvation in Christ. Truly, if that's the only gift we ever received, we would praise Him endlessly, would we not? At least beyond this life. It says He begat us of His own will. Of His own will, God is the first one to move in every salvation. For reasons known only to Him, He plucked us as brands from the fire of His own will. And it says, begat He us. That's to, to bring forth out of the womb. Salvation is not a process. Salvation is not something that you've always had. You weren't born a Christian. You haven't always been a Christian. If you're a saved person today, there was a point in time. You may not be certain the exact day, and that's okay. The Bible doesn't emphasize that. But there was a point in time where you went from unbelief to faith. Where you went from death to life. Where you went from sonship of the devil to becoming a son of God. It's a new birth. And he did that with the word of truth. The sword of God is the Scriptures. And every person who comes to Christ, the Bible has a great deal to do with it. You cannot be saved apart from either the written or spoken word. It can't happen. Visions and dreams do not bring people to Christ. The Scriptures do. It's hearing the Word of God that produces faith. And by the way, in evangelism, that's why somebody must have some kind of interest in the words of God. Let's say here's somebody who, I just, I just want to go to heaven. Well, let's spend some time in the Scriptures. I don't have time for that. That's a soul that's not prepared, is what that is. Because an interest in the things of God, a true conviction of sin produces an interest in the Scriptures. That's why when you go through the book of Acts, you see time spent with hungry souls who wanted to know, who searched the Scriptures daily as lost people in Acts 17, whether these things were so. And it's through the Scriptures that they were brought to Christ and it says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And again, the prevailing idea is that we might be dedicated for his use. Paul uses that in second in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. You know, it's interesting. Corinth had problems, and uh, America has an immorality problem. But I don't know how much we have on Corinth. It was a perverse place. And Paul is writing to this church who's some of the members are struggling with moral issues. And he doesn't say, well, don't do that. God will beat you senseless. I mean, there is discipline in there. 1 Corinthians 5. But here's the deterrent to immorality he gives. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. Who do you belong to if you're a Christian? You're not your own. 
You do not possess yourself. You may think you do, but you do not. Who does your body belong to? It belongs to God. Who does your spirit belong to? It belongs to God. Who does your soul belong to? It belongs to God. Why were you given new life in Christ? That you could bring glory to His name. That's why. That in practical working, that you may cause others to think rightly about God. You know, that's one of the biggest issues with sin. Of why it's so terrible. It causes an unbelieving world to think wrongly about God. Now when that truth dawns on our hearts, that of His will, a God who gives perfect gifts, every good and perfect gift comes from Him, brought me to birth through the power of His Word that I should be dedicated to His service and usage for all of my... By the way, not just on this earth. You know one of the glorious things about heaven? You and I will serve God perfectly and it will be our utmost joy and delight to do so instantaneously. Think of the greatest thrill you have on this earth, whatever that is. And imagine that multiplied a thousandfold in response to every command of God. What a day to be able to serve Him like that. Now, when that truth dawns on our hearts, it should produce two key responses towards the written Word of God. And both of them have to do with an attitude of receptivity. And again, in verse 19 and 21, they begin with wherefore. They're both, both of those are conclusions based on uh, what he just said. And by the way, when you see the word wherefore or therefore, when you're going through the Scriptures, it ought to make your antennas go up. Because... What's usually happening is there's a practical application of a theological truth, okay? There's something that's been taught. And uh, the verse I just mentioned from 1 Corinthians. You are not your own. Therefore, what do I do about it? Same thing here. It's usually a conclusion based on theological teaching. In other words, we're getting down to brass tacks of how this should affect my life today. And that's one of the ways that faith can be demonstrated. So verse 19, be swift to hear. Literally, hurry up and listen. And again, in the context, it's talking about listen to God. Listen to the Word of God that we should cultivate an attitude towards the Bible and by extension, biblical preaching and counsel and teaching an attitude that's quick to listen, actually running towards and looking for truth. I mean, are you a person that God wants to get a message through to you? He has to practically chase you down and pin you on the ground and force feed you? I hope not. So it's actually running towards and looking for truth. It's stepping towards the light. And then, of course, he gives a warning about both tongue and temper. Then verse 19, uh, verse 19 there is dealing more with the time element, not slow to hear, but swift, with the ear to the door. Verse 21 is more the disposition towards what's actually heard. Wherefore, there you see it again, verse 21. Wherefore? Let's put away filth, both small and large, and then receive the engrafted word with meekness. So 
As a subject, hearing from your loving and fearful master in heaven, that means not arguing, not excuse making, not unbelief. And unbelief, by the way, has a lot of undercover agents. Unbelief masquerades as a lot of things. Well, I just don't I just don't think that the Bible has much to say on my situation. That's unbelief. Well, I just I'm not sure God really understood what I'm going through. That's unbelief. That means you refuse to believe that God has perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, loves you intimately, and spoke to you as though you were the only one in existence. That's unbelief. So, faith does not disbelieve the Word of God. It listens with meekness and readiness to hear. And then the Word of God combined in the soul with that kind of attitude is able to save, and in the context, to preserve your soul to keep you from falling, to help you conquer any sin, at least as a way of life. I'm not saying that anybody's going to attain sinless perfection, but I will say this, to walk in the light, as John says in 1 John 1, is entirely possible. To walk in typical, consistent fellowship with your Maker is very possible. No sin has the authority to dominate you unless you give it. And do I need to mention the obvious, though, that the Word of God's able to preserve your soul like that, but no other source is able. No other source is able. I mean, think of the human diet. Let's say you have a person that, I mean, he may have been raised on meat, potatoes, and vegetables. Amen, right? But he's cultivated a newer diet. And now all of a sudden he gets to a point all he wants is Cocoa Puffs and Cherry Pepsi. That's all that sounds good. Nothing else makes him feel full and satisfied. Well, how long can that continue? Well, for a while. But what's the inevitable result? Rotting teeth, indigestion, sleepless nights, various diseases, malnourishment, maybe, maybe self-caused diabetes. <laughs> That's just getting started. A death is the result. It can't be sustained in health by junk food, and the same is true in the spiritual life. And friends, that's why your evil flesh, your Roman 7 flesh that you still have, and all the forces of hell are going to do their utmost to shut off your ears or appetite for the Bible. I think that's one of the biggest dangers with all the glitz and glamour that's hurled at us in increasing measure. Are the lights themselves wrong? No. But they'll draw your attention away from the simplicity which is in Christ. Let's face it, you cultivate the wrong attitude. Uh, opening up black and white, pen and ink, doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy. Hmm? By the way, the solution isn't to create the message by Eugene Peterson. What a disaster that thing is. 
The solution is to cultivate the right appetite. To by faith understand, this sustains me, that does not. I'm going to make myself choose to be in the Scriptures. Now, that brings us to a dividing line, though, between the two verbs mentioned back in that title, between hearing and obeying. Now, let's say you befriend a fairly new Christian, and many of these that James is writing to were newer Christians. And by the way, they were first generation. Uh, They didn't have centuries of Christian literature that you and I enjoy. I mean, they were the first layer of block in the Lord's building that Ephesians refers to uh, calls the church. Now, let's say you find this fairly new Christian and uh, you find that he has a real hunger for the Scriptures, and uh, he should. That is one of the fruits of salvation. Now, that, that hunger will vary from person to person, but it's going to be there. But let's say you find this new believer that has a very commendable hunger for the Scriptures, and uh, you see, he always gravitates towards spiritual conversations. He doesn't have a lot of appetite for anything else. He wants to talk about God and the Bible. And anytime there's a solid Bible teaching available or anytime that good preaching is happening, he actually makes plans, adjusts the schedule, and shows up. And he's devouring the Bible on his own time. He's wearing out the pages. Furthermore, you find that He has a very meek disposition towards the truth of God. He's ready to hear correction. He's ready to agree with the Lord in in God's assessment of things. And he's willing to put in the effort to study, to learn, to self-examine. All right, now take a, a newer convert like that. What would you think? What, what, what kind of counsel would you give them? I, I hope you'd commend them. There's many commendable things there. Press on, brother. Amen. But notice what James does right on the heels of describing that kind of listener. Rather than posting a banner that says the end, he actually puts up a warning monument. Notice verse 22. But... Okay, be quick to hear. Have a meek disposition. Devour the Scriptures. Understand they can preserve you. But be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, it's an important note here that if we're going to treat the Scriptures like the living, breathing Word of God... When the Holy Spirit, who perfectly knows human nature, and each of us in particular, makes a statement like that, especially to Christian people, you can be certain the danger there is very real. I mean, you could... I think if we took the time for just a group discussion, we'd probably come up with several places. I'm going to mention just some of them. In the New Testament, that warnings of deception or self-deception are given, and Every one of them is vital. I mean, let's say you come to a passage like that, like this one, or like some of the others we'll talk about, and your honest heart attitude is, I'm beyond that. 
Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Luke 21.8, the context there is the tribulation Jews. I'm not, we're not going to turn to all these. I'm just going to mention them because we don't have the time to turn to all of them. The context there is the Olivet Discourse, the parallel passage to those uh, Matthew uh, 24 and 25. But he says this, Take heed, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. So, heading into their earthly ministry just before the Lord's departure, those early disciples are warned about the danger of being led away by a fake Jesus. Oh, there's a lot of fake Jesuses today. There's the fake Jesus that isn't God. There's the fake Jesus that's Lucifer's brother. There's the fake Jesus of uh, the rock and roll philosophy. The party-hardy rebel joint smoking hippie Jesus and the Jesus of the shack. Those are fake Christs. 1 Corinthians 6.9 Again, these, are, these next ones are all in the epistles speaking to churches, speaking to believers, to Christian people. 1 Corinthians 6.9 Be not deceived. He's saying don't be fooled. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind. Effeminate's the, the soft side of the homosexual relationship. Abusers of themselves with mankind is the, the masculine side. You'll notice they can't get away from that order of things even though they try. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Why would Paul say that? Don't be deceived. <laughs> There's actually a danger in beginning to think salvation doesn't change lives or that flagrant rebellious sinners by habitual lifestyle are saved people. And Paul says, don't let that fool you. Friends, uh, Christians can fall into some terrible sins. I mean, a Christian could fall into homosexuality, but there's no such thing as a Christian homosexual. That doesn't exist. And Paul says, don't be deceived by that. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. He says, there's a danger of thinking that you and I can associate intimately with evil people and not be affected by it. He's saying, don't be deceived. That will affect you. It will. Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. There's a danger of a Christian thinking that he can sow certain things and not reap certain things. That God's law of sowing and reaping is going to pass him by. Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't be fooled by that. 1 John 1, 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here's the danger of thinking our sin nature is eradicated or at least chained up in the basement somewhere. I'm not as evil by nature as I used to be. Oh, yes, you are. Hey, now, I hope you're more sanctified than you used to be. I hope you have more 
nearness to God that means you heal to the flesh less, but the evil of that nature has not changed. John says you get to a place to say, well, I don't have that problem anymore. He says you're fooling yourself. And in that area, you're not. The truth isn't in you. 1 Thessalonians 2.3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, speaking of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ, shall not come except there come a falling away. That's an entire apostasy, a total sellout to phony Christianity. He says that day is going to come first, before the tribulation or right at it. And the man of sin, the Antichrist, is going to be revealed. See, What's that? That's the danger of getting messed up in end times theology at the hands of sensationalist false teachers. That's what was happening in Thessalonica. I mean, they, they had teachers come through. Y'all missed the rapture. So here's what we're going to do. So everybody freaks out, to put it in technical terms. Friend, uh, by the way, in times theology matters. Do you know how many people are messed up in the head concerning why they're even on this earth right now? Because of their misunderstanding of end times doctrine? Paul's saying, don't be deceived. Don't get your end times events out of order. It has huge ramifications. It did in Thessalonica. It still does. Now more can be named. We're not going to take any more time. But back in James... What exactly is the danger that he's mentioning? Let me point out something very important, what's being contrasted here. James is not contrasting a scoffer with a listener. This is not a contrast between a person who rejects the Bible and a person who does not. There is a contrast between those two, but that's not what James is talking about. This is a contrast between two people. Now this is important. Between two people who are both ready to hear and who both listen with meekness. I mean, James is talking to people that he's just told, be quick listeners, listen with meekness, drink in the Word of God. But here's the danger. Even with a great deal of biblical influence, there's a danger that we merely become reservoirs of things that are true. We become depositories of spiritual knowledge familiar with the nuances of difficult Bible passages, able to jump into most theological discussions and at least have some sort of opinion, to be a lover of good Christian literature, to speak fondly of Spurgeon and Mueller and Brainerd and Rutherford. And yet, all of that knowledge can become a subtle replacement for actually doing something about what the Bible says. That's what he's warning about. Now, I don't want any of us to have illusions that it would have been better to be born 50 years ago. That's baloney. You, you couldn't live at a better time than now because God put you here. This is where He wanted you. 
So you and I, with respect to what God's called us to do, could not live in a better time according to God's point of view. So I, I don't want to send that impression. But I do think that this danger we're talking about of being hearers rather than doers is more acute living in an age where so much Bible teaching and tools are so readily available. I mean, think, just go back a few hundred years. Imagine no Strong's Concordance. No Vine's Dictionaries. No Strong's Dictionary. Very little commentaries, almost none that were solid. Uh, no computerized searches. Any notes you had written by hand. Now compare that with books that we have today, like Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. It's a cross-reference, tremendous resource. I think it's got about 500,000 cross-references in it. You can start at any verse and, and go off in branches. But combine those books we have, combine that with technology. I'm not even that old, but when I first started preaching, certain studies that used to take me hours can be done in 10 minutes now. Because of the technology. Now, the technology is a good thing. It's not bad. But the danger is there's an accumulation of fact, an accumulation of information, an overload of truth that this disconnect grows between what I know and what I do. Now, my list here isn't exhaustive. But I had to stop here and just ponder, why is that? Why is this a problem? I mean, you wouldn't think it would be. You would think if, if all of us could just, all of us could be ready listeners and drink in the scriptures and listen with meekness, that would be pretty smooth sailing. James is saying, okay, that's good. Now stand on that platform. Now, do something about it. Why, why, why is this a problem? I, let me just throw out a few. It could be pride of intellect. I mean, there is a carnal satisfaction at knowing something that somebody else doesn't know. There is. That's why Paul said, knowledge puffeth up. And it's not that knowledge is bad. But he was saying knowledge accumulated for the sake of accumulating knowledge, all it does is make the head do this. You remember, especially if you were saved later in life, do you remember the days when you, you knew nothing and you knew that you knew nothing? <laughs> I do. I didn't know a dispensation from the Apocrypha. And not a clue. I remember asking for permission if I could come on Wednesday nights. I wasn't sure I was allowed for some weird reason. 
I didn't know anything. I listened to anybody who claimed to be a Christian. They thought it was safe. But years go by and more things are learned and more stances are taken and you fall and you get up and you fall and get up and and we learn more and that's good. We have more knowledge. That's good. But eventually it can become... By the way, that... The pride of intellect, I think it can be documented, is what's killed theological seminaries over and over and over again. Spirituality and scholarship aren't opposed to each other. Paul was both. But you trace the timeline of almost any seminary that used to be solid, and that's what happened. I think a Dallas Theological, and it's called Dallas Theological Cemetery now, Good men came out of there. Uh, Schaefer, the founder, some of you heard me recommend him recently, and one of the things he did every year with those students, he spent an entire week at the beginning of every school year teaching them on the necessity, necessity of a spiritual and submitted walk with God or everything you learn here is useless. If all you pick up here is fact, if all you get here is knowledge, if all you're able to do is debate and preach homiletically correct and theologically collect sermons and it builds the head and not the heart, we have failed. Well, fast forward decades and that's exactly what happened. You know, there's a tendency we can become a sort of armchair quarterbacks in the Christian life. And talk about what to do and how it should be done and, and this and that. And <laughs> I think I've mentioned it before. It's one of my favorite quotes that comes out of the sporting world. I don't pay tons of attention to it. I used to, but Bud Wilkinson, successful coach of Oklahoma University in the mid-1900s. Because of his success, he's asked to lead the President's Council on Physical Fitness and get America whipped into shape. And so they interview him. What is football? And they're expecting this profound answer. Football is a microcosm of life. Football teaches care. You know what he said? He said, football is 22 boys on the field in desperate need of rest, being watched by 40,000 people in the stands who are in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> Well, that's not what they expected. Christianity is not a spectator sport. God doesn't want armchair quarterbacks. You hear these guys in the stands, well, they'd do it like this if they were on the field. Well, buddy, you ain't on the field, and there's a reason you ain't on the field. So maybe you should just eat your hot dog and relish and coke and keep your mouth shut, right? Uh, there, there, maybe there's some kind of a meritorious sense like God is pleased with me just because I know things. And again, I'm not against knowledge. Knowledge is vital. You remember just one instance. Romans 6. A huge, huge, huge passage on sanctification, on, on, on combating the sin nature. Knowing this. Knowing that. It's standing on that foundation of knowledge. You reckon this to be true and you go forward in faith. So, Knowledge is not the problem, but it doesn't stop with knowledge there. 
Do you know God never gives us knowledge without a purpose? I don't think He does. That purpose may be just to praise Him more. It's a good purpose. But I don't think God's interested in just giving fact. He's interested in conforming us to the image of Christ. He uses truth as the vehicle to do that. Maybe there's a false sense of security that comes with it. I mean, I can get away with things because I know better. Oh, I'm not like that guy who, who can't discern his own issues and find his way back. I can always find my way back. So I think it's a little safer for me to go over here because I know better. Or uh, I know how to fix that problem. I'll, I'll get to it soon here, one of these days. In fact, maybe I'll talk about it every day. That'll make me feel better. Or maybe it's fear. Maybe it's fear that can keep us as hearers and not doers. A fear of failure. A fear of not doing it just right. A fear of what people will say or think. A fear of the cost, etc. We were talking about it in Sunday school. Fear is paralyzing. Or maybe it's love for this present world. Some kind of idolatry has crept into the heart. And I know if I go from hearer to doer, it's safe to be a hearer. I can converse theologically. I can talk with God's people. I can fit into the mix. I know how to mingle with the saints. But if I draw that line in the sand and step out on the Lord's side, it's going to cost me out there. I'm not sure I want that. So, there's probably more reasons than that. I just want to throw some out there. But notice the object lesson that's used in verses 23 to 24. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Again, the precise nature of, of this object lesson is critical to understanding this. Here's a guy who actually does take the time to walk into the bathroom and to look at himself in the mirror. He's not running from the mirror. That's a different guy. This is a guy you can picture. He walks in, he opens the door, he flips the light on, he stands there and he looks at himself. I mean, I know that that thing doesn't lie. It shows me what I am. I mean, who'd be dumb enough to argue with a mirror? Maybe some would. But he beholdeth himself. So at least for the moment, he sees himself for what he is based on what the mirror shows. So far, so good. And I mean, if you were to pull up there next to him, hi, buddy, let's talk. I see here, if we look in yonder mirror, you missed a few spots shaving. Man, you've got a Vesuvius-sized pimple growing up here. You better... Can I pop that for you? You're, you could use a haircut. And man, that nose hair. Rapunzel is going to be coming if you don't take care of that. And he would, for the moment... He'd say, no, you're, boy, you're right. I, I mean, there, there it is. There's what it shows. 
That needs to be taken care of soon. I need to deal with that soon. There's no question about it. What can I say? Here I am. Here's the mirror. But verse 24, he goes his way and he forgets what he saw in the mirror. So the day's pressures and temptations come on him and other priorities take the front seat. And what happens? The effect of that mirror quickly wears off. He forgets what manner of man he was. I mean, you could see him in a month and you could see him in a week or a year. And here he is. He's still agreeing with you when you point it out. But he never quite gets around to actually doing something about the problems that are revealed. I mean, the analogy is pretty easy, isn't it? Here's someone full of biblical knowledge and fact. They listen to preaching and teaching. And more than that, they acknowledge when they're nailed to the wall by it. Oh, amen, brother. I, that's uh, Boy, that's, that's true. That's got to change. I, mm-hmm, that's me. Oh, yes. Oh, I need to. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Amen. That's right. But day after day, He forgets what the mirror of the Bible has revealed and he never actually reaches the critical point of doing something about the problem. I mean, we can examine ourselves for a minute and uh, I don't think this is all or none. This is you're in one category or the other. I generally resist that type of interpretation because it causes a lot of wrongful problems. To some degree... We all fall into this trap. But think about the times where he says, you know, I need to do something about, I'm not talking about mowing the lawn. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about concrete spiritual issues. You're confronted, oh, that's right, that's a problem. Yep, the, the, the Bible says that, what can I say? I'm, I need to do something about that. I need to study the Scriptures more or be more disciplined in prayer, serve more. I need to deal with that particular attitude or that sin or that waste of time or that borderline pressure or that friendship or whatever it is. I mean, I I really think, I I could just picture James would pull out, uh, you know, if some friends of ours went to China as missionaries, one of the big struggles they had, Chinese culture is a little different than America. And uh, things don't mean what they sound like they mean. And they said a big one is people would say, we'll have to have you over for dinner sometime. Now in China, that doesn't mean that. That's just a way to get out of the conversation. And so, you know, they're thinking we want to reach these people. That's great. And so he'd pull out his planner and say, great, when can we do it? And the person would turn red and walk off. Well, gradually you figured out we want to have you over for dinner doesn't mean that. I mean, I could just picture James. Let's say I come to James and I say, man, this needs to change and this needs to change and that needs to change. And James would pull out a notepad. He would say, you're right. Now, what are we going to do about it? Somebody says, I, I'm not sure. Okay, good. That's a starting point. Let's start there. What are we going to do about it, right? So, acknowledging what's in the mirror is one thing. 
doing something about what's in the mirror is, is quite another. There's no virtue in simply admitting a problem. Change has to be part of the equation. And of course, that's a lifelong process. Sanctification's a journey. <laughs> in verse 25, you have this other kind of hearer. The one who says, look, verse 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Now, think about that statement. That's a description of the Bible. The perfect law of liberty. Do you notice uh, law and liberty seem to be contradictory? They're not. What a description of the Bible. A carnally minded person inevitably is going to think that law and liberty are opposite principles. There are heaps of teachers today to tell you those are two different things. You either have law or you have liberty. You have to pick. That's a terrible misrepresentation of the New Testament. Why would he call the Bible the law of liberty? You know, it's amusing. It's sort of understood on a national level. I mean, our forefathers wanted a free nation. Why in the world did they create a constitution? Because they knew there was no true liberty in a fallen world without law. It's funny, some of what's going on in these protests across the country, not funny, but thousands seem ignorant that the very law and order they're standing against is the very reason they even have the freedom to get down there and throw objects at police officers. You have no liberty without law. It's true in the Christian life. The spiritual mind finds the law of God to be liberating. When I'm talking about law, I'm not talking about not the Mosaic law. The law of liberty. Meaning the bulk of the New Testament teaching of the Christian life, which does contain prohibitions, yes. But it's called a law of liberty, not a law of condemnation. It's... A spiritual mind doesn't look at God's prohibitions as these cold steel bars keeping me from fun, but understands by faith these are barriers placed by loving hands to keep me from going off cliffs. As one person has put it, a cheap fence at the top of a cliff is always better than the nicest ambulance at the bottom. But it's the guy that gets mad at the fence that's going to get the ambulance ride. A spiritual mind finds the law of God liberating. He's free from sin's dominion. His new nature delights to do the will of God. He sees prohibitions and commands properly. But he doesn't just hear and acknowledge. He continues therein. He's not a forgetful hearer. He's a doer of the work. He actually presses forward with the hard work of sanctification. Nobody is saved again by works. It's entirely of God. To believe in Christ is the opposite of doing anything. It's to rest in the merit of another. But when it comes to our Christian growth, the balance taught in the New Testament with God's part and our part working together. And if you and I don't reciprocate that as doers of the Word... Growth is not going to happen, at least not much. 
procrastination stops. Someone has said, what now? Now is all there ever is. Because when later comes, it always changes its name to now. A doer of the word has the attitude of now is all there ever is and now is all I may ever have. They're going to put in the work of self-discipline, of putting away filth, of obeying principle rather than feeling and frames of mind, of putting into practice what he reads rather than waiting for some perfect opportunity to do so. And James says, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So God's blessing is going to rest on that person. What he does and where he goes is not to say he's free from trials. But that man's going to grow and he's going to make progress in the pilgrim journey and he's going to bear fruit. It's really not much different than what Peter says in 2 Peter 1. He talks about these exceeding great and precious promises. That's the divine side. And then he says, besides all this, giving all diligence, that's the discipline on our part, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and on goes that chain. Peter's saying if you not just have knowledge, but be doers of the Word in those areas, and then he gives this promise, for if these things be in you and abound... They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But really, Peter's also saying, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, these last two verses, and we're done, they contrast useless religion with true religion. And again, uh, the Bible uses that word religion. Depending on what somebody means by that, it can be a good or bad word today. But he says in verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious... A religion here is referring to the external pattern of behavior connected with religious beliefs. The shell of my behavior with regard to the things of God. So he says, if any man among you have at least a shell of religiosity, you claim to be a Christian, you attend church regularly, you make some attempt to pledge allegiance to the Lamb of God, what he says next. And bridleth not his tongue. Again, more on chapter 3 on that one. But he can't rein his tongue in. He can't control his mouth. He talks part of the day about spiritual truth and then the sewage of hell comes out of his lips the other part of the day. James says this man's religion is vain. It's useless. Now, I don't, as I understand it, think he's saying dogmatically the man is lost. Remember, we're talking about the behavior of biblical faith. God is interested in practical godliness. A faith that walks with Him. And the tongue can tear down your testimony faster than almost anything else on earth. I mean, we are here to be light in a dark world. That's why God put us here. 
And he's saying a profession of religion that doesn't change the tongue and the attitude and the direction. Somebody can be a carnal Christian for a while, yes, but he's saying that type of religion is of no practical use on this earth. Now, some of you have heard me say that statement, I can't stand. I got asked that early in my Christian life, or told that. Some men are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Here's what James would say. Many people are so earthly minded that they're no earthly good. And the only real earthly good you, you and I can be is to be heavenly minded. So James isn't interested in a Christianity that just points to a creed. He's interested in a Christianity that makes a difference in this earth, in people's lives. Now the tongue's just one example of useless religion. In both of these verses, I think he's picking a stark example, but it's not limited to that. But it's one example, it can be, of a, youth, of a useless religion. I heard it again from, a, I was having a conversation with one of our new neighbors yesterday. And then most of you have heard this before. I don't go to church. This is my church, you know, talking about the trees and everything. I used to know God and walk with Him. But here's what he said. Some of the nastiest wicked people I know talk about church all the time. Now, that doesn't absolve this man of his responsibility. Okay? That's a, that's a separate issue. But, sometimes that's true. And James is saying, that kind of religion, a Sunday-only religion, is useless. Most of the world could care less how you act when you're sitting here. What they want to know is how you act when you're out there. Your character when nobody's looking. How you respond to criticism. What comes out of your mouth? story I've read of a grocery store owner talked loudly of his Christianity and uh, he lived in an apartment building up above his store and every morning if you were walking by you could hear a conversation similar to this he'd yell out the window to his assistant who was down on the bottom level hey John yes sir have you watered down the milk yes sir did you color the butter Yes, sir. Did you put chicory in the coffee? Yes, sir. All right, well, come up for morning devotions then. By the way, men of the households, it's our job to teach the Scriptures to our family. But you better deal with sin before you do that. You pick up the Bible to teach your family and they know you're out of fellowship with God. They know your speech. They know your actions. They know what you are. And you pretend like everything's fine. That's one of the most damaging things you can do to the soul of your child. 
God, God does not enter. He doesn't want us to claim perfection. You, if you were to come to our home for family devotions, you would hear me deal with sin often. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm saying because I fail often. But deal with it. Don't sweep it under the rug. I hope my children, I have no illusions they're going to see a perfect dad. But I do hope they can see the same guy at home as they see here. And I do hope they can see sin honestly dealt with. Because it happens. Now, Notice how pure religion is described, though. And again, he's not saying the only thing you can do to prove Christianity is visit orphans and widows. But he's picking a, a, an example that really cuts to the heart of the issue. Look how pure religion is described. All right, here's useless religion. Here's fake religion. Can't even control the tongue. Makes a pretense with no substance. And here's pure religion. And undefiled, literally unsoiled in the sight of God to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now notice, neither one of those areas are loud and draw attention to themselves. Neither one of those requires special training or exceptional giftedness. But here's what they are. Pure, unsoiled, practical, useful religion in the sight of God. It means to take a compassionate interest in the needs of others. Especially at times those that cannot repay you. It means putting the needs of others first even at cost to myself. And to keep one's own life clean. Unspotted means unblemished. It means while walking through this barren, mucky wasteland, you're determined not to let the enemy's filth stick a moment longer than it has to. So you might put it this way. Pure religion before God is demonstrated by hearing and obeying the Word of God in a way that results in acts of grace and a walk of separation from the world. Both of those are vital. How useful is our religion this morning? I don't mean does the world love you. If you walk with Christ, generally they're going to hate you. But how useful for eternity? Is your job site a little bit different because a Christian's there? Is your family different because the Word of God is there. Let me first ask, backing to the beginning, what kind of hearer are you first? Ready to hear? Listening with meekness, understanding that it's like this was penned to just me? Is that sharp but still living? This is my authority. 
And to realize this speaks either by command or principle in every vital area of my life. There's no struggle you and I have where we need wisdom that this has nothing to say. None. Now it takes some skill sometimes to get there, but it's there. And secondly, if you are a hearer, and I hope you are, are you a hearer only or are you a a doer? Now I know all of us probably have areas where we'd say, man, in that area I'm just being a hearer and It's good to acknowledge that. But the challenge from James, if, I don't mean some kind of false guilt, if it's something that God is pointing out to you through His Word, something that's actually from the Lord, you're looking in the mirror and it's pointing out an area that needs to change. James is pulling out his notepad and saying, all right, what are you going to do about it? And when? When? I hope that everybody in here knows Christ, but I dare not assume that's the case. I mean, you may know parts of the Bible. You may even know the basics of the Gospel. But have you ever submitted yourself to the righteousness of God that you don't possess? Have you ever realized you are so utterly depraved, so utterly hopeless, so utterly dead, that if God doesn't perform a miracle, you're doomed? Ah, but then you hear of God becoming man and going to that cross to be nailed there in your place. And when He cries out, it is finished. It meant the penalty for your sin and all of hell that you deserve was nailed to that cross and that you came to the place of realizing I'm done trying to save myself. I'm done with fake religion. I'm done with self-effort. I take Christ. Truly, that's the dividing line between heaven and hell and life and death. Everybody in here is going to stand before God. You're not going to be judged on what parents thought or the pastor thought or your coworker thought. You're going to be judged on what God knows. He makes no mistake. If you're not in Christ, you can be. But don't put them off. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray You'd help us. I, Father, that you, you, were, you were so right when You compare this life to a war where full body armor is needed. And I pray You would help us to have a hunger for the Scriptures to be ready to hear, but also ready to do. And I know the applications of this are going to be different with a slightly different to everybody here. But I pray You'd help us not to take a false guilt and a head-hanging, depressed, uh, woe-is-me sort of response, but to get up in faith and to take Your forgiveness and to know that You want to help us grow. And You are always there to do so. But we must do our part. I pray You'd help us to be a people that's pressing forward and reaching forth for that prize. And we might exercise ourselves unto godliness, which doesn't just last in this life, but all of eternity. Father, if anyone here is dead in sins, I pray You'd open their eyes to see that. 
as none other than the God of heaven holding a sword over them, telling them, repent or perish. And I pray, Lord, that they would flee from the wrath to come. In Jesus' name, Amen.